0: All weekend anymore, I don't I don't particularly enjoy preaching in other venues to people who are not my flock. And I'll be honest with you, it was a joy to be here on that blisteringly cold Sunday, but I didn't particularly enjoy that Sunday either because I like to feed the sheep. I like to feed the sheep as the shepherd whom God has called to feed them. And so uh, I have been looking forward to this I almost could not sit in my seat last week. As good as Josh's message was, I just, I just, I long to bring it. And uh, so, I, Lord willing, we're going to do that this morning. If you would find your way back to Romans chapter 8, and when you get there, let's bow together in prayer. My God and my Father, as we open up your word this morning. My great prayer is that it will come with power. I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would come and fill these words with a life giving, death defeating, soul reviving force in order that the dead may be raised, that the unbelieving may come to faith. That the doubting may find their feet supernaturally planted on the solid rock of this gospel. And so we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we plead before the Lord who is compassionate and gracious. And slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. The Lord who has not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. And we come delighting in the truth that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your loving kindness towards those who fear you. And as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. That just as a father has compassion upon his children, so the Lord our God has compassion on those who fear him. Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would open our eyes to see those truths. And that we would depart from here this morning. Changed. Transformed. Secure. Confident. Joyful. And in the case of some who are here this morning. Alive. These things I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 was written for your assurance. I don't know how we could come to any other conclusion when the chapter begins with these words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And ends with these words... For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Book ended by those two great declarations of assurance. Everything in between is designed for the same purpose. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned these words for this purpose, that you and I might have a rock-solid foundation to our faith, that we might have a bedrock on which we could sink the anchor of our hope and be unshakably secure in the truths that we're going to find. That's why he wrote it, that's why we are here this morning in Romans chapter 8. And my prayer is that he would do that for us today. And we need this assurance. We need this confidence, we need this anchor for our soul. Because in between those two bookends, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear, as does the rest of the New Testament, that we are going to experience suffering in this life. The world, the flesh, and the devil are going to come against the children of God. He's going to come against the sheep of Christ. He's going to come against you with everything that they've got. Look, just look in the middle of Romans chapter 8. Look with me at Romans 8 verse 16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And we would say yes and amen. But don't stop. If, if indeed we suffer with Him. So that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Did you catch what he just said? He just established for us that the path to glory leads through the valley of suffering. It is ordained for you that you would go through trials and hardships and experience suffering in order that the testing of your faith would come out on the other end refined and pure like gold. Look at Romans 8.35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. This passage makes absolutely no sense unless Paul actually expected the followers of Christ, us, to experience tribulation. And distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword. This passage is absolutely absurd unless the sheep of Christ are actually going to be slaughtered for their testimony to the Savior. So let's just set this kind of as a foundation for what we're going to read today, what we're going to study today. By God's sovereign design, you're going to go through hardships. They don't come from the devil Ultimately, as Luther was fond of saying, the devil's on a leash. He's God's devil. Accomplishing the purpose that God has foreordained. So by God's sovereign design, you will endure tribulation, affliction, persecution. By God's sovereign decree, you will suffer disease, tragedy, grief, and loss. So I just want you to be warned that there are rough seas ahead. We are not prosperity people. We are people who suffer with joy for the glory that's been set before us. And I want to ask you, how are you going to navigate through those rough seas? How are you going to navigate through the seas of suffering without without losing your way? How are you going to sail through the, the oceans of tribulation without being blown off course? How are you going to withstand the storms of affliction and the waves of doubt Without capsizing and losing it all. Losing your faith. Losing your walk. Losing your very soul. What you need this morning. What I need this morning is ballast. You know what ballast is? You sailors will. Ballast is the weight that is placed in the bottom of boats. Usually it's water held in ballast tanks. To keep the ship lower in the water. So that it's center of gravity is low. And it provides stability to the vessel. When the seas get Tough and the waves get rough, and the, the ship begins to do this sort of thing. Ballast keeps the vessel upright. Without ballast in your boat, without weight and substance to your faith, you're going to capsize when these trials come. And you've known people like that, right? They're there for a while, and then something happens cancer happens, job loss happens. The tragic loss of a child or a spouse or a parent happens, and then suddenly this whole thing must be a farce because it, it, it didn't work. You need ballast. My love and my passion for the gospel arose out of a desperate quest for assurance. There was a long, extended period of my life when my soul was assaulted by the winds of doubt and fear, and my boat became so battered by these waves that I nearly capsized and drowned. I'd like to share a bit of that struggle with you this morning in hope that it might be of encouragement to you in your own trials, whatever they may be. And by the way, I know that some of you share the very same trials, the very same struggles with doubt and fear and assurance that that I went through. Some of you have told me, and I know that in a group this size, there are many more of you who are going through that right now. You don't know if you're saved. I want to speak to you this morning. My struggle all started about eight and a half years ago in my first semester of seminary. I attended Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary, Memphis, Tennessee. And it was there that I encountered for the first time a doctrine that I was previously unaware of, but uh, had been a big thing in evangelicalism for about 20 years. It was a doctrine known as Lordship Salvation, which taught this. That unless a sinner accepts Jesus as Savior and Lord, which was defined in this way, as sincerely surrendering every aspect of one's life to him, then he could not be saved and was not saved. And in class after class, in chapel service after chapel service, we were regaled with stories of people, church members, seminary students, who thought that they were saved, and then they realized that they were not actually saved. Their, con- their conversion had been false because, and here's the word, they had not truly repented of their sins they had not sincerely surrendered all of their life to the lordship of christ i want your eyes up here for a second because i don't want to be misunderstood on this point it's bad to have misunderstandings in your first week the problem with the concept of lordship salvation is not that it teaches that jesus is lord the idea, in fact, that a person could accept Jesus as one Savior but not surrender to him as Lord is absurd. It's like saying, you know, thank you, Jesus, for rescuing me from sin and death and hell. Love that benefit, but I don't really want you messing around with my life because I kind of like it the way it was. I'll receive from you the forgiveness of sins, but I'm not going to submit to your commands. Listen, such a person is not saved. Such a person is not alive in Christ. Such a person is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. No, the problem with lordship salvation is that it very subtly shifts the focus of the gospel to a salvation by sincerity or salvation by surrender rather than where the focus should be, which is on salvation by grace through faith in Christ. The focus is ever so subtly shifted from what God has done in Christ Jesus to save a sinner like me to what I can do for God in order to earn my place of acceptance before Him. It makes salvation a thing to be earned by my sincerity and by my repentance rather than my sincere repentance being the necessary and essential fruit of the grace that I've received first. It places the emphasis on what I must do to achieve salvation and removes the emphasis from what God has already done in Christ to accomplish my salvation. And the results are devastating. I'm not sure how anybody has the confidence in Christ that they need and the assurance of salvation that they desire when their salvation is totally dependent upon their 100% perfect sincerity. We need a gospel that doesn't start with me. We need a gospel that starts with Christ. And this created within me a debilitating fear that maybe I hadn't been sincere enough. When I had first asked Jesus to save me. Maybe I hadn't repented enough. Maybe I hadn't felt enough Maybe my conversion was not decisive enough or dramatic enough in order for it to be real and genuine. You see, I I first professed faith in Jesus Christ at the age of nine, night before Easter. After watching a passion play, I was baptized and uh, was active in church from, from then on. But as a teenager, my heart was drawn away and I fell into horrid sin. I was a hypocrite. It was full of wickedness, unrighteousness, immorality. wouldn't have known it by looking at me because I, I played a good game. But when I was 21 years old in my junior year at SBU, God brought me to repentance. And my life forever changed. It did not happen all at once. It happened over a period of about six months through the influence of uh, a young lady that I was wanting to date who became my, <laughs> became my future wife, a solid... Local church, and then all I can say is just the sheer power of the word. I began to grow in my faith, and before I went to seminary, if you'd have asked me, "What's your testimony?" I I would have considered myself to have been a believer who had fallen into sin, but now had had come back to Christ. I was that prodigal son who had returned home. I didn't see myself entering seminary as a as a relatively new convert who had only recently been saved. But now in these classes, as I was confronted with certain texts of Scripture and certain teachings of those texts, I began to be very troubled by verses like 1 John 3, 9, right? No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. And I was deeply troubled by the fact that the fruit of the new birth was, was largely absent from my life for a vast period of my life. And I I was willing to admit that maybe maybe I had been a false convert before that time, but here was the problem. Here I was in seminary, desiring Christ and pursuing Him, and I didn't remember any subsequent conversion experience. I didn't have any Damascus Road. There was no dramatic event. When I was 21... I just confessed my sin, began to walk in repentance, and sought to follow Christ. And yet I was constantly hearing this emphasis that unless I had this dramatic event in which I sincerely surrendered all of my heart and life to Christ, unless I had this this emotional experience in which my heart was flooded with conviction and then flooded with relief when, when conversion happened, then I probably was not saved. And so I tried to get saved again. And again, and again, like every week. And I was baptized again. And I redoubled my efforts. Maybe I'm just not trying hard enough. I redoubled my efforts efforts at serving God and obeying His Word, but none of it worked. No matter what I did, I had very little confidence that I was accepted in the sight of a just and holy God. I was absolutely paralyzed by fear, debilitated. By the fear that I had not done enough for God to save someone like me. And I wonder if any of you here this morning can relate. I bet there's more than a handful of you. But then by God's grace something something began to happen. The way I describe it is in this way. Light began to shine into the darkness and drive away the fog. Again it, it didn't happen all at once. It happened... Slowly, over time, the first seeds of that freedom were sown into my heart by a professor I had, Dr. John Mahoney, in a systematic theology class, who began to unpack for me for the very first time the doctrines of grace. And I didn't know it, but my, my soul was thirsting. I was starving for the gospel. So I began to drink in every book I could read, listen to every sermon that I could get my hands on that would simply point me away from myself, would point me away from my futile quest to nail down a, a time and a date, my futile attempts. To anchor my my assurance in an experience and instead lifted me up out of myself and directed me to Christ who never changes. And whose grace for me is unfailing. I just wanted somebody to lift my eyes off of myself and put them on the cross. Because it wasn't happening at school. It wasn't happening at church. And he began to direct me toward the sovereign grace of God and the saving work of Christ and a doctrine which became so very dear to me, the doctrine of justification by faith and by faith alone. I was captured by this truth. You ready? God justifies the ungodly. God justifies sinners by his free and sovereign grace alone. By faith alone. On account of the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. To the glory of God alone. What God did for me over those years was to fill my battered soul with the ballast of his gospel. And that's what I want to do for you this morning, Lord willing. I want to fill your boat with ballast. I want to fill your faith with weight and substance so that it will stay upright and on course when the inevitable winds come when the winds of suffering begin to beat across your bow when the winds of doubt and fear come and satan whispers into your ear you're just not good enough for god when things happen upon you and you find yourself asking could god be in this I want you to stay upright, and I want you to stay on course, and I want you to reach the goal. Now, your struggles, your storms may be different than mine. My my storm was doubt, fear, a lack of assurance. Your storm may be cancer, sudden, maybe you're dealing with the sudden and tragic death of a loved one, circumstances that you didn't ask for but came your way anyway. whatever the storm may be the danger to your soul this morning is real you doubt god's goodness you doubt god's grace you doubt god's love in the final analysis when you lay your head upon the pillow you think how terribly disappointed the father must be in you what you need is ballast so this morning we're going to look at romans 8:28 to 39 and we're going to find in these verses 5 massive truths, five heavy truths, which are intended to give weight to your soul and ballast to your boat. You're going to see them listed for you on the back of your bulletin so that you know where we're going and can follow along. These five truths are going to arise out of the series of rhetorical questions that the Apostle Paul asks in Romans 8, 31 to 35. We're going to back up and pick up 28 and we're going to look ahead and go all the way to 39, but that's where the bulk of the sermon is. So let's look at that first truth designed by Paul and ultimately by the Holy Spirit to provide weight to your soul. The first truth is this, the purpose of God is invincible. Look with me at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? See, your salvation is unshakably, eternally secure because of the fact that it is anchored not in yourself, and not in the sincerity of your repentance, and not in the strength of your feelings, but in the invincible purpose of God. So I've got good news for you this morning. I hope that when you come on a week-by-week basis, you come to hear good news and you leave feeling as if you've drank it in. I've got good news for you this morning. If you are here hanging on by a thread with only a sliver of faith, only, only a shred of hope, but that faith and that hope, weak and small as they are, are planted in Christ, in His blood for the atonement of your sins, in His righteousness as the only means by which God would ever accept sinners like you and me, If your weak faith is placed in the right place, that is in the strong Savior, then God is for you. He is on your side and absolutely nothing can prevail against His invincible purpose to complete your salvation. God is for us this morning. Is that not the inescapable conclusion of verses 28 to 30? Look what Paul says there. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. God purposed our salvation. And according to that purpose, he called us to salvation and causes all things, even disease, even suffering, even doubt. He causes all things to work together for your salvation. God chose us freely and unconditionally in eternity past. And he set his particular saving love upon us. And he predestined that we would be conformed into the image of his son. That Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. And all those whom he predestined, he called, he summoned, he said, you come here. And all those whom He called, He justified, declaring them righteous in His sight. Not by their own works, but on account of the invincible work of Christ. And all those whom He justified, He has every intention of glorifying. The fact of which, did you notice, is so secure that He speaks of it like it's already happened. God is for you. And most of us go through every day not thinking that's true. God is for you. That, my friend, is the unbreakable chain of God's invincible purpose for your salvation. None are lost. Do you notice that? All who are there at the beginning are there at the end. None are lost. None perish. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose how many? None says Jesus in John 6, 39. God's sovereign, gracious, and invincible purpose to save his people, i.e. you, will stand and nothing can thwart it. God is eternally, unalterably, and savingly for us. And if the sovereign, majestic, omnipotent God is for us, then Paul says, who can be against us? Now, he does not mean that we're not going to face opposition. He does not mean that the world, the flesh, and the devil are not going to come against us with everything that they got. What he does say, however, is that none of those things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, nothing will be successful in thwarting or in any way altering God's invincible purpose to set out to finish what he set out to do, that is to save you, his people. So I want you, number one this morning, to place the truth of God's invincible purpose as ballast in the hull of your boat, so that you will stay afloat and on course no matter what contrary winds, and no matter what forceful waves come upon you. Second truth, the provision of God is inexhaustible. Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Paul here is arguing from from the greater to the lesser. In other words, God has already given you his best, his beloved, his only begotten son. Is it not absurd then to think that God would withhold from us whatever is necessary to complete that which his son has set out to do? Yes, it is. God will provide for you that which you need to make it, to persevere to the end. The grace, the faith, the strength, and the endurance that you need. Because the Bible makes clear, let's settle this as well on week one. The Bible makes clear that the Christian life is a race and only those who finish receive the prize. Only those who persevere to the end will be saved. Does it sound like Bible verses? They are. But the Bible also makes plain that your perseverance does not ultimately depend upon you. Because he who began a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it. He will give you the willing and the working by his spirit that is necessary for you to follow him to the end. Such that all who truly belong to him will endure, will persevere, will finish the race and will receive the prize. His provision of grace for the perseverance of his saints is inexhaustible. Notice what he goes on here. He's going to talk about the atonement, which we're going to get down to again in verse 34. But I just want to point out a couple of things. Paul says that God did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. God did not spare his own son. From what? From what did God not spare his own son? God did not spare his son from his own wrath against my sin and against your sin. See, God possesses a holy and a righteous wrath, a burning indignation against us, our wickedness, our sins. And instead of pouring out that wrath upon us, he poured it out upon his son, Who absorbed God's wrath on our behalf and suffered the punishment that was due our sin in our place as our substitute. God spared not his own son, but delivered him over to drink the cup of judgment and wrath in order that we would be spared from that wrath and would drink the cup of his grace and his blessing. He did not spare his own son. And for whom did God deliver his own son? Over to judgment and wrath. He delivered him over for us all. Who is the us? It's the same people all the way through this passage. It's the us whom God is for in verse 31. It's the elect whom God has justified in verse 33. It's those whom he foreknew and predestined and called and justified and glorified in verses 29 and 30. It's you. If you are in Christ by faith this morning. Jesus Christ died to atone for the sins of sinners. Not the righteous. Not the sincere. Sinners. And he has atoned for it perfectly. God poured out his justice and his wrath upon our substitute. And he did it in order that ruined and helpless and insincere sinners like you and me, could receive the riches of His grace. God has made a full and perfect and final provision at the cross. And his provision of grace for us, which enables and ensures that our salvation will be completed, is inexhaustible. I want you to hear, he has not left you alone this morning. It may seem as if you, right now this morning, are just sort of floating and stagnant and motionless in in the sea of your Christian life. But I want you to take heart. The wind of the Holy Spirit is blowing. Even slightly even imperceptibly he is blowing and he will blow you to those celestial shores you're gonna make it how do i know because if he didn't intend for you to make it he wouldn't have delivered his son over for you the wind of the spirit is blowing and you're gonna make it if you hold fast to him who is delivered over for your justification and was raised for your sins third truth The justification of God is irrevocable. Simply put, when God justifies a sinner, He does not unjustify him. He does not revoke that declaration of righteousness when they fail to measure up. How could He? When our justification was never based on our own works to begin with, but was based on the finished and perfect saving work Of Christ. Nothing of my own merit. Nothing of my own obedience. Nothing of my own deservedness. Enters into my justification. It is all based upon Christ. And upon Christ alone. Therefore God does not unjustify. Those whom he has justified. On the basis of the perfect and complete work of Christ. On the contrary. What does God do with all those whom he justifies? He glorifies them. So look with me at verses 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Paul is going to enter into some Legal language. He's going to take us into the courtroom of of the judgment seat of God. And in the next two verses, he's going to pose two questions meant to reinforce our confidence and our unshakable security in Christ. The first question has to do with an indictment. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? The second question has to do with a verdict. Who's going to condemn one for whom Christ has died? So let's answer that first question. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? And you can kind of hear the rhetorical nature of that ringing in your head, can't you? The answer is clear. Nobody. Why? Paul says, because God is the one who's justified. If a church justified me, I wouldn't be on very stable ground. Churches come and go. If another person's opinion justified me, I wouldn't feel very secure because I often fall short of other people's opinions. If my opinion of myself justified me, but God justifies. Justification by faith alone is the very heart of the gospel and it it involves two very important transactions. If you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to grasp a hold of this by faith. Two very important transactions. In the first place, God removed all of my guilt and my sin and he imputes it or transfers it to Jesus Christ and he poured out all of his wrath and in his indignation which I deserved upon Christ. So all of my sin to Jesus. But that's only half of the gospel. That's only half of the good news. God then takes all of Christ's obedience and righteousness and imputes it to me by faith so I stand before God right now before you in your very presence perfectly forgiven and utterly righteous by faith and by faith alone all of my sins punished at the cross all of Christ's obedience clothing me like a garment and covering all of my deficiency and so if God has justified me then who can possibly lay a charge against me? Let me ask you a question. Let's just think through this logically. You, you are reasonable people. You are semi-reasonable people. Let's just think through this logically. Is there any sin of mine which God has not already punished? No. Every transgression, past, present, and future, punished in Christ at the cross. Is there any debt to God's justice that remains unpaid? No. It's finished. Paid in full. What if I sin after God justified me? Am I liable to God's judgment for those sins committed after conversion? No. Because justification is not God taking your slate of sins, wiping them clean, and handing it back to you and saying, now keep this clean or else... God did not merely give me a fresh start in justification. He did not give me a clean slate and expect me to keep myself clean by my own self-effort. At the cross, God once and for all dealt with all sin, past, present, and future. And now I stand before the judgment seat of God justified, forgiven, pardoned. Righteous, And no one in heaven, on earth, or in hell can declare guilty one whom God has justified. The declaration that is over my life is irrevocable. The justification that is over your life is irrevocable. No matter how faltering your faith is. For the work of Christ is unconquerable. Simply put, the saving work of Jesus cannot be conquered by condemnation. Verse 34, Paul says, who is the one who condemns? It's another rhetorical question. Nobody. Why? Because Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who always makes intercession for us. Paul anchors Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we may ask ourselves why, he anchors that declaration of no condemnation in four unconquerable works of Jesus which are finished. Okay, work number one, there is no one to condemn because Christ Jesus has Died as an atoning sacrifice for sin. Christ's death was a propitiation for the sins of his people. Which means that at the cross, the sentence of God's justice was carried out in full upon Christ. God's wrath fully satisfied, fully absorbed in the person of Jesus. There is no sin which I have committed or will ever commit which God has not already punished in the death of Christ. No one, not the world, not the flesh, not the devil, not myself. Listen, not even God can condemn me when he has already punished me in Christ. Second, there is none to condemn because Christ Jesus has been raised. God raised Jesus from the dead because he was satisfied with his death. He was satisfied with the payment that Christ made at the cross. The atonement was complete. Redemption was perfect and finished. So God vindicated his son by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is undeniable evidence that there is now no condemnation for those who believe. Jesus is the living proof of your justification. Number three, there is no one to condemn because Christ Jesus has been exalted to the Father's right hand. After his death and resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. This is the language of exaltation. It's the language of a coronation. Jesus was crowned king after his resurrection and in his ascension. He has been exalted to the highest place and now he reigns as sovereign king over all that he has made. And the reason this assures me that there is no Condemnation that can come upon me is because Jesus has been exalted precisely because he died. Precisely because the work is finished, he has been seated at the right hand of God. This is what Paul says words matter. Beloved, words matter. In Philippians 2.8, don't rush through that passage because he says about Jesus being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross, for this reason also. God has highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why did God exalt his son? Because he submitted himself to the obedience of death. Even the death of a cross. And he sat down at the right hand of God because the work of atonement is finished. Nothing can add to it, nothing can take away with it, and no one is going to argue with the ascended and enthroned king as to who is and is not condemned. Number four, there is no condemnation because Christ Jesus is interceding. Right now, he's interceding on your behalf. Not only is Jesus the sovereign king, but he's the great high priest. He's the mediator between us and the Father, having reconciled us to God. He is our advocate who continually pleads our case before the righteous judge. He's our surety. The blood and the righteousness that that secured our salvation never leaves the Father's right hand. The evidence of our justification is always laid out on the bench. Jesus is our intercessor. He's praying that our faith would remain. Listen to me. Jesus is actively right now and will until he returns. Praying your perseverance into being. He's praying your salvation to completion. That's why it's going to happen. Because the prayers of Jesus are always answered. No one can bring an indictment against God's elect. Because God has justified them. No one can bring a guilty verdict against God's people because Christ died to propitiate God's wrath. He's been raised because the work of redemption is complete. He's exalted to the right hand of God with all rule and authority. And he intercedes on our behalf to complete our salvation. Listen, beloved, if you will take verses 33 and 34 and inscribe them upon your heart, memorize them and remind yourself of them every day. You will find your feet so firmly planted in the truths of the gospel that there is nothing that will come upon you that will blow you off course. Just put it in there and then just breathe the air of joy. Number five, the love of God is inseparable. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is ours in Christ. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, and here's a catch-all category, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Suffering, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, slaughter. These are not signs that God does not love you. On the contrary, the very things that cause you to doubt his love for you are the very things he has ordained to sanctify you, to turn for your everlasting good and his everlasting glory. Thank God for this cancer. God sure does love me. Thank God for this job loss. God sure does love me. Thank God that the enemy is so concerned about our activity in the ministry that he's constantly whispering in my ear, you're not good enough. God sure does love me. The storms that God sends to batter your little boat are designed to strengthen it for the journey home. You are unshakably secure in your salvation this morning, not because of your own ability to keep yourself saved, but because of God's determined purpose, as it says in Jude 24, to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless, with great joy. And I don't know, I don't know what storms are assaulting you this morning. I haven't been around a long time, but I've been around long enough to know that there's something Unless you're here this morning, you're perfect. Love to meet you. Something is battering you. Something has been battering you. Or the storm lays just over the horizon. But I'll promise you, you're in one of those three categories. Maybe the waves of doubt are smashing against your hole. or threatening to turn you over. You were here at the beginning of this message, and you said, that, That's me. I spend every day, every Sunday, wondering if I've done enough, been good enough, sincere enough, felt enough surrendered enough for God to accept me and I want you to listen to me very very closely another hand raised another aisle walked another prayer prayed another dip in the baptistry is not going to secure your faith and it's not going to bring you the assurance that you desire Because all of those things are merely attempts to save yourself or rather to make yourself savable and to do that one more thing that you have to do in order for God to accept you and it will not work. Take the word of someone who tried for years. You are not saved by your sincerity and you are not saved by your surrender and you are not saved by that one more thing. That you got to do. Because you're not saved by works of any kind. You're saved by Christ. It is God who justifies. And it is Christ who has died and has been raised. And is seated at the Father's right hand. And intercedes for us. Assurance will come to you beloved. When you put the ballast of God's sovereign grace in your boat. And you drop the anchor of your soul on the bedrock of the blood and righteousness of Christ. Stop looking inward. Stop looking back. And look at Christ. Maybe the winds of despair are threatening to blow you off course. Your circumstances are so bad this morning that you wonder how God could possibly be in them. I want you to take heart, beloved, because God is going to cause even those circumstances to work together for your good. God is for you, and you will overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves you. Through him whose love for you never fluctuates, never ebbs, never flows, never wanes, never grows cold. There is never a day when God's disposition towards you who are in Christ is, well, I am so disappointed in that one. Gospel. Solid, truth, grace, freedom, joy, it's yours. Take hold of it by faith. We sang a song a little bit ago, a lot a bit ago, and we're going to sing it again. And I hope that the words of it make a little bit more sense to you now if they were a little fuzzy before. It goes like this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands. No tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great, unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Let's pray. My God.